For instance, there are 750 plus species of mushrooms in the state of Kansas, and I found maybe 300 of them. It's like on my bucket list to find every species in the state, but I know it's almost going to be impossible because some of those species only come out once every 10 years. Really? Yeah. How is that determined? What's the point of waiting that long? Sometimes the conditions have to be really specific in order for them to actually produce a fruiting body, which is the mushroom that we actually see. 10 years. Wow, that is one patient mushroom. Can't wait for you guys to hear all about it. Speaking of patience, I've been patiently waiting to release this episode. This was recorded last year. That's right, last year. Remember 2019? Wow. We took that one for granted, didn't we? I uh, I I waited to release this and I've been eagerly wanting to release it. It's a fantastic episode, but I waited because my new friend, Lindsay Ryan, mycologist Lindsay Ryan, who you're about to hear, she has this fantastic pocket guide to common Kansas mushrooms that I wanted to wait until it was released and published for any of you guys uh, in Kansas or anywhere in the area or just interested in cute little pocket books full of pictures of mushrooms and descriptions and any of you uh, big time mycologists out there, fascinating. I'm flipping through it right now as we speak. I didn't even know mushrooms could could look like. Yeah, did you know that mushrooms don't just like the look like the ones in grocery stores? Were you aware of that? Because I forget sometimes. So you can check that out, A Pocket Guide to Common Kansas Mushrooms. And if you want to check out my newest YouTube channel, now one of the things that the new normal and new newer newestest normal is bringing to you is new and improved video cast content never did video until the quarantine have been making improvements ever since and we got a ton of uh, new episodes coming your way so enjoy today's episode and afterwards pop over to the old youtube channel take a look at some highlights and things like that and uh, i'll talk with you guys at the end enjoy today's episode are we yes where are we here why are we here not entirely clear we are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all it's immensely bizarre here we are hello everybody and welcome to the here we are podcast today I am in Wichita talking with a naturalist at the Great Plains Nature Center. Lindsay Ryan is joining me today. Lindsay, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm honored to be a part of it. And yeah, you're a mushroom nerd. Yes. We're going to be talking about mushrooms today. You have a book coming out and at the time that this is releasing, it will have come out, uh, A Pocket Guide for Common Kansas Mushrooms. For all my mushroom picker listeners out there, I think that that, that you might be surprised how, how many how, how many mushroom picking listeners I I probably do have. Um, but in Kansas specifically, so is this? Does every state have their own mushroom guide, or they should? And that's what you're working on. Yeah, they should. So it's actually really difficult to find mushroom guides on specific species within different states. Most of them are found like regional areas, but unfortunately the last one that was published for Kansas was in the 90s. So mm. it's pretty out of date and I'm just trying to update it so that people who are out in nature or looking for mushrooms and they find ones that they're not familiar with, they can just pick up this little guide and flip through it and see what, see if it's there or not and help them identify it. So you described yourself to me as a mushroom nerd. Uh, how did you get into what spawned your 
love of spawn. Mm, yeah. Uh, <laughs> your love of mushrooms. I appreciate a good pun. I didn't even try to do that. I just noticed that I, I mean, uh, whatever, associative brain. I think that, uh, that, that my subconscious knew what it was doing with yeah. that. And I noticed afterwards. I've been an outdoor girl my whole life. I grew up on a small in a small town in Kansas out in the country just running around and I was always aware of the little things around me and not the big ones not like the deer or the cows or the trees it was all the little stuff like little bugs and little fungus and I wanted to know as much as I could about them and it kind of dawned on me that every time I would ask a question about oh what is this why is it here why should I care about it no one really knew the answer especially when it came to mushrooms because not a whole lot of people know about a lot about mushrooms um, so when I went to college, I started to, um, kind of focus more on that. And I wanted to learn as much as I could about all these mushrooms and it just kind of snowballed from there. So I'm not really interested in edible species per se, like morels or chanterelles or anything like that. I'm more of a diversity person. For instance, there are 750 plus species of mushrooms in the state of Kansas. And I found maybe 300 of them. And, um, it's like, on my bucket list to find every species in the state, but I know it's almost going to be impossible because some of those species only come out once every 10 years. Really? Yeah. How is that determined? What What is the uh, kind of conditions? What's What's the point of waiting that long if you're that species? Sometimes the conditions have to be really specific in order for them to actually produce a fruiting body, which is the mushroom that we actually see. And that can be specific temperature, amount of rainfall, the amount of rainfall over a collective number of years. So these mycelium or the actual fungus that's underground that we don't see with our eyes is storing all of these nutrients underground and um, or whatever substrate it happens to be growing in like a dead log or in a leaf or something. It just kind of depends on the right conditions. And all of a sudden this fungus is like, oh man, this is perfect. It's time for me to start reproducing. And so it pops this little mushroom out and it starts doing it. So it's difficult to determine what conditions are necessary for certain species mm. to actually do that. That's a very patient mushroom. I mean, I've read about some seeds that require, you know, a wildfire to happen for them to split open and and uh, and start growing. So there there's something like that going on with these. The, the, so that's, that's almost, would you say that it's a more um, kind of finicky species in a way something that's only coming up that often it, it, like the the um the environmental kind of criteria for it to uh to grow is just a lot more either specific or or rare to this condition yeah i would say that um for example there are certain species that can only grow in fruit in sandy soils versus um like regular soil that you find in your backyard it has to have a lot of sand in it and I'm really not sure why, but there are specific conditions that different species of mushrooms need to, in order for them to actually grow in these areas. And it's conducive to what the species actually is. Hmm. Are there any mushrooms that are that are like doing well with uh, in cities? You you pave things over, and and all of a sudden there's some species that's like great. We love growing in pavement and human made <laughs> structure. Yeah, actually, there's one that comes to mind, and I get asked about this one all the time. And it's Chlorophyllum molybdides, or the common name is the vomiter. And it gets that common name because it's actually the species that causes the most poisoning in the United States because it's very commonly misidentified for a similar edible species. Um, it's the giant mushroom that fruits in fairy rings in people's yards and in ditches along like major roads. Now is about the time that they're going to start coming up. I'm starting to see them when I drive down the road, but I can't drive home without seeing these mushrooms popping up in the ditch. So they're probably one of the most common species that you'll find in urban areas, hmm. but people should definitely be aware of them because they make people really sick. I mean, I can't fathom the idea of, I, and I know, I know people do it and people are going to like get your guide and they'll be able to uh, <laughs> really tell the, the very nuanced differences in all these different species and know what they're looking at and picking. I can't imagine just like walking down the street and being like, Hey, there's a mushroom. It looks kind of edible. And then just taking a chunk and throwing it in my mouth but i guess that's people are doing that i it, guess <laughs> as, as a as a mushroom nerd how how much um 
I, I guess how confident are have you ever had uh, times where you're like oh, i wonder if i can eat this or not or do you always know a hundred percent i am not i mean like i said i'm not a big edible mushroom person yeah. i like mushrooms i like to eat them but i'm more of a diversity person but i have in a way trained my brain to recognize poisonous species that are found in kansas and i believe that any mushroom hunter or forager should do that because there are so many lookalikes that can make people really sick. Hmm. Um, so I think I've just started focusing on poisonous species so often because I get asked frequently, can I eat this mushroom hmm. by people all the time? And um, it's like some of the characteristics on those species are so obvious to me now that I'm like, this is what you need to look for. If this species has those characteristics, definitely don't eat it. And mm -hmm. then compare it with something that looks similar but isn't quite the same. For for instance, um, there's a common species called the meadow mushroom. And it's like the wild cousin for the button mushrooms that you buy in grocery stores, those little white ones. Um, and that is actually the species that this chlorophyll and molybdites or this vomitor gets confused the most with because they're both white. They can get fairly large. They grow in the grass. Um, and they can fruit and fairy rings. So they share a lot of similar characteristics. But um, one of two of the giveaways for the vomitor is actually that they have green gills or green spores after it's matured. And um, the edible species, that meadow mushroom, doesn't have that. It starts out with pink gills and then they turn a dark chocolate brown color. Um, the other indicator is that this vomitor has a very obvious ring around its stem and the meadow mushroom does not. So, I mean, there are really obvious characteristics. It's just training your eye and following these um, descriptions in these guides and paying attention to what you're actually looking at. Hmm. I'm a comedian and because I'm a comedian, um, it, it, which one thing people don't know, <laughs> one odd thing about me is I don't laugh out loud very often. I don't really, I'm very specific in the kind of comedy that I do like. I, I'm a little bit of a snob when it comes to comedy. I don't like most comedy that's on TV. I don't like most stand-up comedy. I don't like most improv. I, I have like a, a very specific taste, yep. but because I'm a comedian, <laughs> um, people are like, well, he's a comedian. He likes to laugh. I bet he wants to hear a joke. And then they want to tell me their like street joke all of the time, which is some horrible, like it, it's always when someone's like, uh, I have a joke for you. I'm always just like, please don't let it be racist because uh, <laughs> it usually is. Um, but, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but it's usually uh, uh, just some dumb internet thing that they have. But I'm, I'm wondering, uh, you're a mushroom nerd. People know that about you. They, uh, you're, you're going to some place's house for dinner. You show up and then they just have this spread of mm. like, they're like, Lindsay, here we, we made all these portobellos for you. Here, <laughs> eat. We we're only eating mushrooms. <laughs> Do you get that a lot? Uh, I actually haven't though. I. People do send me a lot of jokes about me eating mushrooms. Um, <laughs> like I have this, I created this mushroom club group through our, through the nature center that I work at. And um, a lot of the people that join, they have to answer these specific questions before they can join the group. And one of them is, um, why do you, why are you part of this group? Why, what makes you want to join it? And most of the time they say, well, I really like eating portobellos and I think it'd be great if I could look, uh, identify them in the wild. I'm like, oh, you're not going to learn that here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, are you even going to find portobellos in the wild? No, no, no. Um, <laughs> and definitely not here. You can grow them, um, but that's like a whole other ballpark. I mean, are they even, aren't they kind of like a um, curated species? Mm -hmm. uh, are, they aren't even uh, like a, a, a portobello you get at a grocery store. That That's not even anything that like, quote unquote, existed in the wild it was kind of like grown and selected for by humans yeah essentially and there are a couple of other species that do that too for instance there's a species of mushroom called enoki that's used in a lot of japanese foods it's like really skinny uh stem with a tiny white cap on top and you can buy them in bundles in uh, like asian food markets well there's a wild equivalent that grows here in kansas and it's the same thing with uh the metal mushroom versus the one that you can buy in grocery stores um this wild one is called the velvet foot and it looks nothing like the species that you buy in the grocery store but it's um the wild equivalent of that it's just mm. been um 
grown and manipulated, so to speak, to look more appealing than the one that actually grows in the wild. Does that drive you crazy? When it, like, like it's, it's like when I'm watching, um, uh, when I'm watching comedy and someone, and I know like the tricks that that a comic's using to like elicit cheap laughs or whatever, because <laughs> I use them myself sometimes. <laughs> um, and but but uh, it. it and then like audiences won't appreciate like the the core of what actually makes something funny is that is that does that drive you crazy at the grocery store like oh people just like this one because it's pretty this other one has actually more nutritional value and tastes better you're uh, just a more agreeable person than i am I bet. <laughs> well i want to say it doesn't bother me but that's because not very many people talk about mushrooms. And if we're talking about <laughs> mushrooms in this sense, that gets me really excited because yeah. that's like a segue into this whole conversation about wild mushrooms and the amazing diversity that we have out there. So I use store-bought mushrooms as a segue I to see. talk about all the other ones I want to talk about. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I know what it's like to have things on your mind that you... <laughs> <laughs> I'm always uh, working on whatever evolutionary... Uh, psychology of consciousness ideas or whatever that I'm like just looking for any little gateway into the conversation <laughs> and as I'm sitting there and waiting as people are talking about their sports and everything and I'm like oh here's my entry point so you do that with mushrooms yeah and sometimes I do it when nobody even asks I'm just standing there and I just start talking about mushrooms <laughs> I'm that weird girl at parties that when no one's talking to I'm like hey can I tell you about this mushroom I found today <laughs> oh that's very uh, how does that go over um I usually just kind of blurt things out that's brave of you so i really yeah. don't care <laughs> okay. and and how is it received here usually pretty well surprisingly um i've gotten a lot of comments about my enthusiasm being like really contagious mm -hmm. um and at the, like when i take people out on hikes to go look for mushrooms and i'm really excited about one species that they didn't even see until i had pointed it out people would say, man, I never would have thought that anything like this could be so exciting until I went mushroom hunting with you, which is a huge compliment for me because now it's getting these people um, to notice things that they've never noticed before, but they were walking right by as they were hiking on this path. Mm. And it just kind of makes helps people open their eyes a little bit better. Um, for example, out in our park right now, there's a relatively, I'm going to call it a rare species of mushroom, it's called a pepper pot. It's actually listed as endangered in all the other countries that it's found in. And I stalk this mushroom like someone stalks their ex on like the social media, hmm. uh, waiting for this mushroom to open up. And every chance that I'm outside and I keep checking on this mushroom, anybody that walks by me on this path, I'm like, hey, come look at this mushroom. It's really cool. <laughs> <laughs> you're, so you're just this uh, this little bridge troll or something, <laughs> that, that, <laughs> just waiting for people to come by and, and uh, to spring that information on them. Pretty that much. would brighten my day if I walked by and, and you were there to tell me some weird thing about some interesting mushroom. How far off? off of the beaten path do people need to get when you're when you're out looking for mushrooms so you know there's hiking trails everywhere do you so you take me out to look out are we able to like stay on the trail the whole time and you point things out or are you like taking a machete I, I you don't strike me as a machete type of you'd of be person. surprised <laughs> um yeah you'll get the machete out there are, are you i'm just wondering how much like trouncing through uh, like the the poison oak and poison <laughs> ivy and stuff that that one has to do to like really uh, catch a gander of of the really cool mushroom stuff out there. Yeah, uh, when I take groups out, like really big groups, we usually only have to stay on the paved path that we walk on. So this park has um, just over two two and a half miles of paved trails, and we just walk those trails and we'll look in. Um, like foresty areas and places I know where we can find mushrooms, like heavily wooded places, um, places with dead or rotting trees. But I've also taken small groups out on like little excursions into the woods. And um, those are full head to toe garment and sprayed in permethrin so we don't get all the tick bites. We've got long pants when it's 100 degrees outside. We're armed with our knives and our like handy little microscopic lenses so we can get a better look at gills and things like that. But it's really dependent on uh, like on how comfortable people are with going out into the woods. Mm -hmm. Most of the time we just stay on the path though, because mm -hmm. they're just right there, right next to you and you don't even see them. 
BetMGM welcomes you with a special offer on the NBA. Simply place a $10 Moneyline wager on today's game. If either team hits a three-pointer, you'll win $200 in free bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. Just use bonus code CHAMPION200 when you make your bet. BetMGM is proud to be an authorized gaming partner of the NBA. And there's endless ways to make it rain with the king of sportsbooks. Download the app or go to BetMGM.com and use bonus code CHAMPION200 to win $200 in free bets if a three-pointer is made in today's game. Visit BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. 21 years of age or older to wager. Washington, D.C. and Virginia only. New customer offer. All promotions are subject to qualification and eligibility requirements. Rewards issued as non-withdrawable free bets or site credit. Free bets expire seven days from issuance. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-522-4700. I'm, I'm wondering in your, because I don't have your book in front of me <laughs> because at the time we're recording this, it's not, uh, it's not finished yet. Um, but is there anything like, I imagine this, it's not like this, but I'm, I'm curious if there is anything like um, walking guides in there that have, no, no, is it, how's the book laid out? Is it just like a number of different species and how to identify them in like the regions you'd find them in? Essentially. Um, so the book has maybe be, uh, about 50 species in there of the most common ones that people are likely to see. Mm. Um, in there, I've listed what time of year they're likely to find them in and what part of the state. Now, most of these species are found widely distributed through the state, but um, you can find them more concentrated, say, in the eastern part of it because there's more woods, there's more rainfall over there in that side of the state as opposed to the western part of it. Mm. And, and I'll just kind of mention where you're more likely to find them and the habitats that they prefer. So, for instance, that vomiter really likes wide open grassy spaces, whereas... Um, the hexagonal poured, uh, poured polypore, that's a mouthful of a name, um, is found in woody areas because it grows on like dead tree branches and sticks. So you're not going to find it in grassy areas unless there's a stick out there and that stick got lucky. Mm. And s and you're listing 700 then in the book, right? No. Oh, man. Or are you just listing the ones that you've found so far? No, I'm actually only listing ones that... Um, people who are not familiar with identifying mushrooms, the ah, most common ones that they're going like to find. It's like a starter guide. Yeah, it's a starter course. guide. That makes sense. Yeah, because most of the questions that I get from people about identifying mushrooms are people who have no idea what they're looking at. Sometimes I get a picture of something and they're like, is this even a mushroom? So I'm just kind of starting from ground zero with this little guide. Hmm. Yeah. I'm just thinking of all the possibilities of of little mushroom tours that can be done. Is you know the one that's that's every ten years or so, and the conditions are just right. Mm -hmm. Is that something that you you have a sense of the area and the certain conditions that will meet that, and you'll like know ahead of time, like, hey, we've been getting a lot of rain lately. I bet this is going. Is it like? Is there a possibility that you can be like, hey, we can go and see the Halley's Comet of, of mushrooms and know ahead of time that it's going to be in a certain place? Probably not for that species. I've actually never seen that species before because it's such it's on the it's list. So it's elusive. on the bucket list. Yeah, it's on that 750 species bucket list. What are you, <laughs> you going to do? Are you going to have to like block off three months and just like sit in a patch <laughs> waiting? Um, ideally, I would love to do that, but probably can't. Um, most of the time, I just go out mushroom hunting by myself or with a friend or two uh -huh. and we will just document and take samples of every species that we find so that i can put them in a database that i'm keeping track of mm. and hope that we just find something that we haven't seen in a really long time mm. so it's really a game of hide and seek maybe mm. one of the things i like about mushroom hunting is that it's actually kind of a game for me you just go out and you look for stuff i i imagine the environment that, or, or not the environment, the, the kind of exact place that you're finding these species is probably changing pretty quickly. Because if you were to say, uh, so there's probably a trail like right outside this building, you can go and take uh, guide people on tours, right? Mm -hmm. So if you were to 
put a map of that trail online and be like, hey, in this part of the trail, you will find this species on the right side of the trail. Is that something you could actually do accurately or would it be changing so quickly that that the map would be useless? Um, for a lot of general species, I can do that. And I'm kind of working on something similar. So I'm taking a census of all the species that are found in the park that I work at. And I'm marking where I find them every year on a map. And a lot of these species are coming back in the same places that they were. For instance, um, I knew that that pepper pot uh, was going to pop up where it did because I found it there last year. And I just kind of monitored it. it I kept walking that area of the path back and forth almost every day, just waiting for some sign that it was going to come up. And sure enough, uh, this little brown stone looking thing was coming up out of the pine needle debris on the forest floor and I was like oh it's there so then I kept walking past it just waiting for the right amount of rain to make it open up because it's actually a puffball mm -hmm. and it looks like an earth star and it's like sitting in this bowl of tentacles almost and it's sitting on top of it and it's this white or I'm sorry excuse me this silver puffball on top and it's got all these little mouths on top of it so when a drop of rain hits it um, and it pushes down on that like silvery pillow part of the puffball it forces all of these spores out hmm. and then the wind catches them and then they get carried off so they can go off and make more little puffball babies oh that's beautiful yeah so um back to your original question i got off on a tangent <laughs> please this is a tangent heavy show <laughs> believe me um but yeah so i can give you a map of this park and pinpoint where i know specific species are going to be because they just come back they're perennials they just keep mm. coming back in the same spot that would be so cool to have because they have, you know, every city has these like city walk guides or whatever that yeah. you can do these self-guided tours of here's these landmarks here and here. It'd be so awesome to have something like that for for mushrooms. Um, yeah. Okay. Now I'm you're just, putting I'm ideas in my seed. head. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm planting spores. Um, <laughs> I, I and it's not too late. You can still add it to this, but I, I imagine it'll take some time to put these uh, uh, trails together. But it's fine. We'll work together on it. It's uh, we'll I'll update the listeners once all this is in place. <laughs> they can they can go to your site and find out more. Do you have like a website for for people to go to as well? Yeah, they yeah. Can find out information. What yeah. is that? Um, it's actually the Nature Center's website. It's gpnc.org, um, and all of my contact information is on there too. So if anybody has questions, just shoot me an email or whatever. How so I, I had that episode, I had a mycology episode with um, Tom Volk not too long ago, and he was saying there's like millions of species that have been identified, or if I'm remembering right, or need to be identified or something like that, and, and that they're kind of growing all the time. You guys are becoming aware of more mushrooms all the time. So is that exciting to you or discouraging that like you have these 700 how many are on the bucket list that that you have yet to see like 200 maybe oh like 500 you've only seen 200 of them let me let me bump that up a little bit so we'll call it like 450 okay yeah, well, well that's that's pretty good yeah yeah, 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 yeah. i mean 200 i was like you're <laughs> kind of slacking a little uh, <laughs> I, but so you get you have uh so you have another 250 to see to get to the 700 but is that discouraging that like on that on that last day when you put that x through number 700 <laughs> and then and then someone's gonna be like actually there's a there's 705 we found five more it, it, how how quickly are they uh it, how quickly are people discovering new species of mushrooms all the time like daily Probably. Um, and that's probably including uh, the micro species like yeast that are just floating around in the air that we're breathing right now. Mm. Um, all those little guys. Um, honestly, it probably wouldn't be discouraging. I'd probably re be really excited about it because one of my favorite things about mycology is that it's always changing every day. Um, I'm learning something new about the world of mycology and about mushrooms and fungus in general. For example, as I was Going through edits of this pocket guide, um, I noticed that the scientific name of one of these species just changed overnight. And that's because scientists are decoding their DNA and RNA sequences and figuring out that, oh, it's more cl more closely related to this species on a um, like genomic level versus its visual characteristics. So it looks a lot like this mushroom, but it's more closely related to this one that's way over here. So they change taxonomically all the time. We're discovering new species. And it's really exciting because I know that I'll never run out of stuff to do. Mm. 
Um, I imagine there's a lot of uh, with humans' impact on the on the ecosystem. There there must be a fair amount of changes in what mushrooms are growing where and how many. But even just within um, a regular old ecosystem, whatever that means, um, it, it, what what are some of the different evolutionary pressures that are acting on? Uh, acting on mushrooms constantly and, and driving um, some of the different morphologies? That's a really good question. Um, and a lot of them are human-based, frankly. Um, agriculture and fungicides and pesticides and everything else is um, putting a lot of pressure on these species of mushrooms. For instance, in Germany, they've got 38 species of mushrooms that are listed on their endangered list or endangered species list, whereas the United States... Uh, I think has two, maybe like nobody in the U S really cares about mushrooms. And I think that's because of this stigma that Americans have opposed to Europeans. Um, but stigma. Yeah. A mushroom stigma. Yeah. Like p Americans are afraid of mushrooms, whereas Europeans kind of like relish in them because they're potentially toxic or because of like psychedelic mushrooms <laughs> what's what's the stigma um, i think it's more because of the potential to get poison from them by accident and we're very safety conscious in the united states naturally of course they are everywhere else in the world but europeans have been harvesting and collecting mushrooms for hundreds and hundreds of years i mean before americans even came to the united states or to north america mm -hmm. or yeah people came to north america um so i think Coming from Europe to North America, we discovered all these species and we didn't know what they were. So, of course, there's an, this inherent fear that if we eat them, we're going to die because there was really there's really no collective way to determine if a species is poisonous or not. Unless you look at it at a chemical level or if somebody eats it and dies hmm. or gets sick from it, essentially. So I think that there's this this overhang of fear that Americans have as opposed to Europeans who are just going crazy over all these species of mushrooms. They're really excited about it, uh, as opposed to, like I said, Americans just being afraid of them. Hmm. What's your favorite kind of, I guess I'd say maybe strategy um, that that a mushroom is, is using out there to spread itself? My favorite method? Oh, man. I got to go back to the puffballs, I think. Yeah. Just that mechanism that they have evolved to use rain as their way of getting their spores out there is just mind blowing. So you, when you think of a typical mushroom, you think of mushrooms that have a cap with a, with gills on the underside, right? And these gills are producing all these spores and then they just kind of fall out and the wind picks them up and carries them away. Whereas these puffballs have to rely on like a physical mechanism of a raindrop hitting it and forcing these spores out. And some of these puffballs are like the size of my thumbnail and getting hit by a raindrop that's like nothing is crazy to me that it even happens. But one of these um, little puffballs that I'm talking about is called an earth star. They're just everywhere. They're really common. We can walk out on the path right now and go find like a dozen of them. And mm. the fact that they're so prolific is just crazy to me. But they just use this rain to force all these spores out. And every time a raindrop hits it, thousands and thousands of spores come out in these little puffs of clouds. And it's just crazy to me. And that's the that's the only mushroom doing anything like that? Um. No, not necessarily. There are a few other ways that mushrooms um, spread their spores around. There's another species that's called the bird nest fungi, and it's very small. It's probably about the size of a pinhead at its smallest and, oh, I don't know, maybe half the size of a dime at its largest. They're really small. Um, but inside these little bird nest fungi, they're called that because they have these little egg-looking things inside of there. And they also use rain to kind of... So when it rains out, it falls on the side of this cup and it launches these little eggs out of the cup that is the base of this fungi or this mushroom. And once those little eggs land somewhere, they have like some of them have these little bungee cords attached to them and they'll land that bungee cord will touch something and pull that little egg in. And then once it dries or once it has a large enough impact, it'll bust open and release all the spores that way. So that's a pretty unique way that that species gets its spores out into the world too. So there are a lot of different ways mushrooms do this. For instance, like truffles, the ones that grow underground. Um, actually, I think I heard this on a podcast that Tom Volk 
actually gave. And he said that squirrels will dig in the ground and eat these truffles. And that's how the truffles spread their spores. They have to go through the digestive tract of a squirrel, <laughs> which is just wild to me. I know. It, it always is kind of funny and silly and a hair sad to me that people are like obsessed with uh, aliens when, when people are like, oh man, what if there were aliens? Wouldn't that be crazy? It's like, we are, this is yeah. all, <laughs> this is all aliens. <laughs> Every little bit of it is aliens. Yep. So why don't you look at the things that you can actually see with your eyes? These mushrooms are aliens. You're looking at them with your alien yeah, eyes. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> um, that, uh What's the what's the most um, uh, what's the the go to method then with with mushrooms? So you said that most of your average just boring old mushroom, you have a cap and you have these gills and and the spores just um, uh, just take off in the wind. That's that's the just that's the most normal run of the mill. I guess it depends. So that's one side or one tiny puzzle to the mushroom or the fungal kingdom, kingdom of fungi versus, so there are these other mushrooms that also have a cap, but they call boletes. And that's because instead of having gills, they have tubes hmm. on the underside of their caps. And then you have cup fungi and then you have coral fungi and then you have the puff balls and um, you've got crust and rust and things that grow on plants. And you have jelly fungus, which are just so cool. Um, they're probably one of my favorites, but I can't say that because I say that about pretty much every species that I find. Um, I did a presentation a few months back and I had 65 slides and pretty much every slide had a picture of a mushroom. And at the end of my talk, um, someone came up to me and said, you know, you said that that mushroom is your favorite mushroom for every slide, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, it, um, But there are just so many out there and um, there really isn't a norm per se, for how these mushrooms get their spores out there. It's whatever is the easiest for them. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, for example, one of these jelly fungus is called um, a wood ear. And it grows here. It is an edible species. And it's used in um, a lot of Asian and Japanese cuisines. For instance, if you've ever had ramen, the black mushrooms that are in those ramen bowls, that's a wood ear mushroom. Mm. And they're a jelly fungus. And they put their spores out... Um, they kind of fall on off the underside of this little cup that's hanging off the side of a tree. I'm trying to give you a good visual of this. and uh, But they'll dry out. So they don't have a whole lot of surface area, so they can't produce a lot of spores. Um, and the way other mushrooms make up for that is by surface area. So the gills have a lot of surface area underneath that mushroom, whereas these little wood ears don't have a lot of surface area because they're not very big and they dry out quickly. But their way of making up for that is that when it rains, they reconstitute so they can keep putting out spores. So it's not surface area that they use to put spores out. It's time. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. So I, I do have some listeners just going crazy right now going, Shane, when are you going to ask her about psilocybin <laughs> mushrooms <laughs> and and how can we find them? Are are they going to be listed in, in this book of yours? I imagine how could they not be? Well, they're not actually. They aren't. No, they're not. You left them out. <laughs> I did. Uh, really? Yep. That was an intentional choice that you made? It was. And that is because um, in Kansas, there aren't a lot of psilocybin species that you can find here. I mean, there are some, but they're also pretty difficult to identify. So usually people associate with psilocybin with growing on cow dung, right? Or cow patties or poop of some kind. Mm -hmm. But some of these species don't just grow on poop. They grow in other places. So they're difficult to identify. Um, they're not as common in Kansas as they are, say, in the Rocky Mountains. Mm -hmm. um, but... I did leave them out because you're not going to find them very much here. Okay. Yeah. All right. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> I have to ask. Yeah. It's for the listeners, not for me. I totally understand. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of medicinal uses of of mushrooms, what kind of stuff are you excited about these days in in uh, in terms of? It seems to me, maybe I just run in 
different kinds of circles or, or, or something, but it, it seems to me that mushrooms are being looked to and utilized quite a bit in a myriad of supplements and, and treatments. Tom gave me his old heart and yep. <laughs> put it in my <laughs> hand during the podcast without warning me and, and then uh, and then explained um, that a, a, a particular mushroom was used to suppress his immune system so it wouldn't attack the, um, the heart transplant that he got. What are some of the uses that caught your attention? And I imagine there's also uh, along the same lines, if there's any like, uh, it, if there's anything being, because I'm not super in the know and in, in, in like supplements and this and that, if there's any mushrooms being pushed right now in the supplement stores that you're like, oh, that doesn't do anything. <laughs> stop, stop wasting your money on that. So two different but related questions. Okay. Let me see if I can tackle the first one. So I think for me, it's not necessarily medicinal uses that are jumping out at me. It's um, the biodegradable side of things. So mm. for instance, um, recently it has been discovered that scientists or engineers can develop a packaging made out of mushrooms that's biodegradable and edible. So that's like, I'm very against the use of plastic and styrofoam. So I try not to use it as much as I can. And I'm very excited about the potential of using mushrooms to package my takeout food. And then I can take it home and just throw it in my backyard and not worry about it. So I'm really excited about that aspect of things. Yeah. Um, and then as for um, the second part of the question, I don't, this medicinal side of mushrooms, um, I don't have a whole lot of experience in. Mm. Um, I have talked to people about it, and I the, I mostly am diversity and edible species identification versus medicinal properties and like holistic uses. Um, but I do know that the craze right now are reishi mushrooms or cordyceps. So people will make teas out of cordyceps and these reishi mushrooms because they're said to have anti-cancer and anti-inflammatory properties. And um, I can't back that up because I don't have any experience with it, but that's just what I've been hearing lately. Hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, I, I uh, before we start wrapping up, um, I, I just don't want to forget to get to this. I have my guests each week plug a charity of their choice. Did you have one in mind? I do. I'd like to plug um, Dress for Success. It's actually a relatively new charity here in Wichita, and it empowers women to achieve economic independence by providing support for them. Um, it gives them high-quality clothing items so that they can go rock an interview or a presentation or anything like that. And it's a well, like pretty much a well-connected network of support for women in the Wichita area that really need it. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, so I want my listeners to uh, to get your guide, especially if they're coming to Kansas. They take that opportunity to, um, to uh, take some hikes and check out some mushrooms. Is this something that, that you can just kind of like, say, say once you have kind of just a basic general understanding of mushrooms, you know, it, it kind of just everything shifts your awareness and things start being highlighted as I, you know, learn more about science or have something comedy related on my mind. I'll just spot it more uh, in the environment and, and know it more. Do you think that people kind of learning more about mushrooms will change the way that they're kind of hiking around and, and looking at things? Oh, absolutely. Um, for instance, I have a women's camping group that I'm a part of and we try to go camping once a month. Fortunately, I haven't been able to make the last few because I've been so busy. But there is a woman that we camp with who really had zero interest in mushrooms at all. And then um, every time we camp together, we go hiking. And I was that mushroom nerd on the hike who would point all this fun stuff out and tell them about all these species. And now she says that she can't go outside without seeing a fungus. Mm -hmm. So I think once you start seeing things and recognizing those patterns in nature, it just starts popping out at you naturally. One of the comments I get a lot when I lead hikes is, how did you even see that? I had no idea it was there. And we walked right by it. And I was like, all of this experience and all of these hikes that I've led before have almost trained my eyeballs to see things before I've even registered what it is. Yeah. So it's just training yourself to recognize these things. And it's not even necessarily training. It's just going out and doing it. And then you just start automatically recognizing mushrooms that you wouldn't see before. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, th- I think that when you first start hiking, you're just kind of your eyes are in front of you and you're looking at the trail Trying and you're not looking to at trip over. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and as you uh, that's that's one of the things that uh, I don't have um, tons of episodes like this. We talk a lot about the brain and stuff uh, quite a bit more, but um, but these kinds of episodes have definitely really helped heighten my experience of being out and about in nature and appreciating it more and um, having more of a respect and understanding for um, for humans' impact on it. And, and uh, it, it just makes it, it makes it a more kind of um, colorful world when you, when you go out on those same hikes with that new bit of knowledge and those, those little things are springing into your um, visual awareness um, a lot more. Um, what? Oh shoot! <laughs> I had a question that I forgot what I was going I to say. It when it um, it, what? What do you think people need to know in terms of um, it, what can mushrooms teach us about uh, humans' impact on the ecosystem and what we kind of need to be more mindful of? That's a really good question. Um, I think. And this kind of goes along with all species of living things. Um, as humans develop and expand our urban environments, we're going to see less and less diversity. And um, what's actually interesting about that is you're not going to find more species of mushrooms in an old growth forest. You're going to find more diversity in a forest that has recently seen something traumatic go through there, like a cutting or like fire. But um, in urban areas, you're actually taking away that environment that it needs to thrive in those trees um, and you're going to see less of it. So I think monitoring the species that are found in certain areas and the frequency of which they return. And if they keep coming back year after year, or if new ones start coming up, that'll be a good indicator of how we're actually treating our environment. And what is, what's the role of mushrooms in a, in an ecosystem what what is <laughs> oh man we, we have plenty of time <laughs> you, you don't need to give me a short answer okay it's it's really complicated and um it's kind of like the internet for the forest so um there are these mushrooms serve a lot of different purposes so there are three main kinds of mushrooms and or their jobs or their roles in an ecosystem the first one is saprobic which means that they uh, break down dead um, and decomposing organic material like trees and wood and things like that. Um, the second one is mycorrhizal. So they form these great symbiotic relationship with all the plants in an area or specific trees. And then your last one is parasitic. And one of my favorite examples of that is the newly found cicada fungus that will actually infect these cicadas and make their butts fall off. <laughs> to put that lightly. <laughs> Wait, what are cicadas again? Cicadas are um, these in- those loud insects in the summertime that are just screaming at the top of these trees. Um, they're just big insects. They're the ones, have you ever seen exoskeletons like hanging off the sides of trees and they look like little, yeah. you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, mm-hmm. that's the exoskeleton of the cicada right before it morphs into its adult form. And um, there are these things called periodical cicadas and they live underground for like 17 years and they come out and they mate and they die, Hmm. which is mind blowing to me that they do that. And it's like on point every 17 years, they know exactly when to come out. Yeah. Um, Anyway, so these relationships in these woody areas or these grassland areas, you have your decomposers. They're the ones that um, help us or they're pretty much the reason that we don't, that we're not up to our chest and like sticks and dead trees and poop and things like that. Um, Then you have your mycorrhizal fungi, which form almost like a communication network between tree roots. And um, these mycelium are smaller than, or these pieces of mycelium or the hyphae that's part of the mycelium are smaller than a tree root hair. So they have the ability to absorb more water than a tree than tree roots can so they form these amazing symbiotic relationships with these trees where um they will help this tree gather more water than it would normally be able to and the tree will actually um give it carbohydrates that this organism needs to survive Mm. um and 
not only that, it's been recently discovered that um, one mycelium can connect um, a tree to a tree or several trees in almost like a network and they can communicate back and forth with each other. And these trees can talk to each other essentially through this mycelium, hmm. which is amazing to me. What are they communicating? I'm really not sure. I know that they communicate things like um, threats that they're undergoing. For instance, like um, if there's a disease that's around, one tree has the ability to let another tree know that it's being infected. And maybe if that tree gets that message in time, it can do things to prevent itself from becoming infected or reduce its chances. Um, that's amazing. I know. Th and through mycelium, this yeah. is happening? Yeah, it can. Um, I think there are, might be a couple of ways it can do this, either through the mycelium, um, through root connections, um, or they can do it chemically. So they'll put these chemicals out on the wind, and I think they can communicate that way as well. Hmm. Um, they also can communicate, for instance, oh, um, one big thing that I actually just learned about is that adult trees that are reproducing and putting out seeds, if they have one of their seeds land nearby and it starts growing into a tree, that adult tree will actually send nutrients and water to that little sapling and in an effort to help it grow better. And it uses mycelium to do that, which is hmm. just crazy. So the connectivity between mushrooms and the environment is really, really complex and I have not done it justice whatsoever, but it keeps organisms in check. It keeps us from getting buried in dead things and it helps keep our trees healthy and our crops healthy. And um, essentially they're a pretty important part of an ecosystem and they're really overlooked. Yeah, but all the cicadas listening right now are like, yeah, but they're also making our butts fall off. You make it sound like they're such a great thing. <laughs> I, get, I get really excited about parasitic fungi, and it's just fascinating to me. Like, um, if you've if you've seen uh, BBC's Planet Earth, where they videotape that ant crawling up to the top of the branch that's yeah. infected with this cordyceps, um, it's crazy to me that this fungus can turn this little ant into a zombie to make it do whatever it wants and a lot of the times i get asked so if ants are now are humans next like are we going to get parasitized by this crazy fungus and we're all going to turn into zombies well some people <laughs> think that maybe we already have i, I mean with, uh, with uh psilocybin mushrooms and, and uh, psychedelic uh, mushrooms which um, I mean, I've I've had plenty of experience. With. I, I don't I don't hide that from my listeners. Um, but uh, I mean, it it makes you see some pretty uh, interesting things, and and I and it's uh, it it's it's very much like um, the the subjective feeling of being on psilocybin is often like. I have this very important message that needs to be shared. <laughs> and it is like a little creepy that mushrooms are like, uh, are, are triggering you to be like, hey, I'm going to go and tell more people about this thing. And then yeah. they're going to eat it as well. I, I, uh, I'm, I'm a, a little curious <laughs> about, about what's, what's going on there. Well, humans aren't the only ones to consume psychedelic mushrooms. Oh, uh, really? Yeah, for real. So I have two examples of this, actually. One is just a hypothesis about why mushrooms have evolved to have these psychedelic chemicals in them. And this hypothesis, hypothesis suggests that um, it's actually to deter beetles from consuming the mushroom so that they can stay erect longer and put out more spores. So if a beetle comes along and eats a psychedelic mushroom and it starts tripping balls, it's not going to sit around and keep eating this mushroom, right? It's going to go wander around in the wilderness, like seeing and all this crazy itself. stuff. Yeah, yeah. And find itself. <laughs> um, the second one is uh, a long time ago, and so I think maybe even still today, People up in like Norway, really far north, like in the Arctic Circle, they would use um, Amanita muscara, which is the very stereotypical yeah. mushroom, red cap. I thought that was Siberia. Spots. It um, might be. I might have the location wrong. Okay. Somewhere up there. And um, they will actually pick all these mushrooms and ha set out trails for their herds of reindeer to follow because the reindeers like to trip balls on these mushrooms. Yeah. And they'll just follow this little trail of mushrooms and eat them up and just have a great time doing it. So um, mushrooms are, or reindeer are very well known to consume psychedelic mushrooms and uh, even certain like 
they think that uh, some people think that's where the um, Christmas tradition yeah. started. Yeah, and I'm, I think I'm going to bring that up in my talk on Wednesday. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I think I'm going to talk yeah, about are, that. Yeah, are you into it? I mean, there's some pretty convincing arguments, oh, yeah. if you ask me. Yeah. What, what do you think? Um, Wait, why, do, why don't you set it up a little bit for this? You don't have to say, like, it's it's uh, not necessarily your point of view, just to, uh, the the point of view that... Uh, that some people have that that is out there. Of, yeah. Of uh, you know, there are these red and white mushrooms. Yep. They're uh, harvested and dispersed in the winter time. There's, there's uh, um, a reindeer like eating. If they're going down to eat them, it looks like they have like a red nose yep, or something. Yep, the red nose. Like yep. And then and then I think that people dried them out by by putting them in in um, conifer trees mm -hmm. so i like the like the things that we decorate yeah trees exactly with. there's yeah. a lot of evidence that backs this up so i think what it stems from is these shaman would uh, they were the healers of these groups of people and they would travel long distances to these huts but the huts that they would have to visit to get inside to to heal the sick person <laughs> was snowed in yeah. so they would have to climb the side and enter the hut through uh, the like chimney. the chimney uh, hole where the yeah. smoke was coming out so they had this big bag of these, yep. <laughs> these mushrooms yep and they drop in there and <laughs> they all they also my understanding was they would dress like the mushrooms mm -hmm. in the color and of they the would red wear and red yeah <laughs> yeah that's exactly right so, so there's a there's a lot in there there's a lot in there so our that's belief definitely about santa, santa claus yeah. I, I mean people are like that seems outrageous but like okay where did the story of santa claus come from exactly a more sensible uh, <laughs> does it have a more sensible creation than that all like, i know is that there was a monk way back when called saint nicholas and that's the other side or the other potential right story that santa claus came from but i'm going to lean more toward uh, the yeah to me the too. mascara side <laughs> <laughs> yeah. huh. um well that, that's fascinating so what about i'm still a little bit the last little thing i'm still a little bit confused about mushroom reproduction mm. um i i don't um i guess i just don't understand it fully um uh it, how how are they uh how how are they how do they reproduce what what's the is every species doing it a little bit differently is it the same basic mechanism um, I think it kind of depends on the situation that that species is in. So mushrooms have two major ways that they reproduce, and that's sexually and asexually. Um, so I'm going to talk about asexual first because that's probably the most common one. Mm -hmm. um, and they do that by putting out asexual spores. They're like little packets of genetic information all ready to go. And then they just have to land on the proper substrate, and then they can grow into a new mycelium. And the asexual, is that just a clone? Yeah, essentially, it's okay. uh, yeah. Those it's essentially a clone of the original parent fungus. Yeah. Um. The other method is through um, budding, where it will actually put enough genetic information into a small piece of its hyphae, or which is a tiny piece of that mycelium or that big structure underground that we don't see. That's the actual fungus. Mm. Um. The mushroom that we see is the, um, the little spore factory, so to speak. So that's just one teeny tiny part of a whole organism that we're not seeing with our eyes. So they'll take. They'll actually bud part of or one of those little cells will shove a bunch of genetic information into a small pocket of it and then just break it off or it buds off of that cell. And then it can just like scooch around in the dirt or wherever it is and um, grow into a new mycelium itself. The other way is through fragmentation where it literally breaks off a piece of that mycelium and it can just start growing off onto its own self. Hmm. So those are the major asexual ways and now sexual is where it gets a little more complicated so these mushrooms will put out spores and they can for visualizations for visual sake i'm going to say one has a plus sign and one has a minus sign mm -hmm. and um in order for them to reproduce sexually though they have to float around and then um meet up with a plus sign or a minus sign and get together and then they can exchange genetic material and then grow into a new genetically I guess that's what I don't understand is how are they finding it's yeah I don't know it's it's crazy and it's the chances of the chances of that is just mind-blowing to me for instance um schizophyllum commune which is one of the most common species on the planet it's also known as a split gill mushroom and because it grows so easily and all over the planet it's one of the most readily studied it has actually been found to have several thousands different 
thousands of different sexes. So it's not just male and female for it. Right. It's like 23,000 other things. And that's because it can reproduce sexually in that sense. So you just need to bump into another spore and chances Hope are, it's the right uh, one. Are, are pretty good that yeah. it's going to be one of the 23,000 that isn't your sex. Yeah, it's crazy to think about. And it's mind blowing to me that they can even do this and that we still, that we even have these mushrooms around that produce that reproduce that way. Because I, I mean, I get with with pollen, uh, pollen gets on a bee or whatever, and then it's transferred and, and, and that. Yeah. I, like I can picture that clearly in my head, but the idea of like this plus and minus sport, like finding each other through the wind Just or- in the void. Yeah. Somewhere. It seems- see there huh so there's no there's no like chemical guidance system happening nothing it's just completely wind-based chaos not not that i'm aware of Um, i'd be fascinated to learn more if there is any um scientific evidence to back that up but Hmm. to my knowledge they just kind of put themselves out there and hope they bump uglies Hmm. (laughs) so to speak Oh, that's very interesting. Well, um, everybody, check out A Pocket Guide for Common Kansas Mushrooms by Lindsay Ryan. <laughs> Lindsay, <laughs> why are you laughing? I honestly don't so? know why I'm laughing. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is a very specific uh, ki- <laughs> kind, of, yeah. kind of book, <laughs> but that's not every listener is, is going to have the use for a, a pocket guide for the Common Kansas Mushroom, but... People that do, people that are in the Kansas area are visiting or know people in Kansas or anything, then they do that do have that specific uh, interest are going to be much more inclined uh, to to get it than yeah. than your average like broad um, uh, uh, book for the masses yeah. or whatever. Well, the great thing about this is that those species are also going to be common throughout this whole region. So it's not just Kansas those species can be found in other states as well so it's not just applicable here terrific well thank you Lindsay, for joining me thank you so much for having Uh, me and thank you listeners for being such wonderful curious people we'll talk with you more next week thanks for listening everybody coming up we're going to be talking about sound self we're going to be talking about a new product virtual meditation app having a virtual trip a meditative aid a really cool new product from my friend Topher Sipes do you know that name I've mentioned it before he made the logo for the here we are podcast has done some other artwork for me made such an awesome poster for the psychonautics documentary so much better than the one we ended up using the distributor needed to go their own route and had other ideas of what crazy trippy things look like and so i didn't get to use his awesome beautiful nuanced poster but go to toffersipes.com and check that out check out all of his cool work maybe get some made yourself he does some pretty cool stuff if you have a business or anything that you're looking for some amazing inventive eye-catching unique work so check out next episode if you're into meditating if you're into um, mindfulness practice if you're into technology combining old ways of meditating with new technologies and a wonderful cool new product called sound self you can check it out ahead of time if you want And those of you that listen all the way to the end, you are, of course, my favorites. If you check me out on Patreon, you can see I'm putting a lot more behind-the-scenes stuff into this. So you might want to check that out. No big whoop. I appreciate all you guys.
Scarpins Audio, a podcast, <clears throat> a podcast network.